and welcome to episode 57 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week we'll be covering true crime and paranormal stories from the state of Indiana. You have the true crime, I have the paranormal, as well as the cocktail, and... I supplied the substituter, the... Pinch drinker. Yes, the pinch drinker, that's what he's so lovingly has called himself. You know, baseball term, pinch hitter. Bring a little masculinity to the podcast. (laughs) Is that okay? So, mom provided the cocktail, which when she walked in here, smelled like a total maple syrup Mm -hmm. convention. Egg waffle in in a glass. Yes. I hope it tastes that way. What are you guys drinking? I got, I'm just kidding. I got syrup all over my hand right now. I cannot (laughs) focus. You're not supposed to dip your hand in the I'm not. You handed me a glass. Literally. Okay, look. There's syrup just (laughs) falling off the side of this glass. Falling off. Mm. So this is called the Hoosier Heritage. And it was invented by a guy named Jason Faust. And the reason he called it that was because of the Indiana Hoosiers. Hoosiers, yep. But the base of his cocktail is Knob Creek Whiskey which I happen to like, in honor of Abraham Lincoln, who moved to Indiana in 1816 from Knob Creek Farm. A little bit of history. He adds, not Abraham Lincoln, but Faust, adds maple syrup, lemon juice, and apple cider to create a spicy and caramely concoction. Now, I have read that you can also sprinkle cayenne pepper over it. That's Um, what's floating in here. Okay. (laughs) Looked pretty dirty for a second, so <laughs> cayenne pepper. You've heard of and, dirty martini, and this is and you call this sprinkled because this. Oh, looks I saw her dumping completely <laughs> engulfed in cayenne pepper. But okay, <laughs> the appearance of this cocktail is not very appetizing at all. Yeah, well, and tell us the garnish you forgot because I'm sure you forgot something. Not forgot. I just didn't, just didn't do. do it. Yep. So the Hoosier Heritage is one and a half ounces Knob Creek, a half an ounce of maple syrup, a half an ounce of lemon juice, one ounce of apple cider, and a rosemary sprig, which I do not have. Yep, there it is. <laughs> so. A rosemary sprig. That would have tied it all together. Mm. Yeah, probably. All right. Okay. I mean, by the looks of it, I'm not excited about this, but here we go. <laughs> Cheers. It looks like a glass full of muddy water, but it smells like maple syrup. <clears throat> Super sour. <laughs> Very sour. Hey, this is a cocktail without limes this time. I mean, I have syrup all over my hands. <laughs> so I'm sitting here thinking it's going to be, you know, semi-sweet. It is sour. Like there is all, all I taste is I lemon. added so much to yours. No, I mean, you must have missed the glass, obviously, because it's all over my hand. Where'd you add it? Just to the outside. I mean, I do like the cayenne, but I mean, other than that, every, it's overpowered by how sour it is. I think I put too much lemon in it. Yeah, yeah I would say so. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to take a couple more drinks, but I don't think this rating is going to be good for me. Yeah, probably won't be making this again, which is too bad because the ingredients sounded pretty good. Yeah. Well, the I aroma mean, is lovely. Maple syrup. Yeah. Um, the presentation's not, but the aroma's <laughs> good. I hate to say it, but I think I'm in the threes with my rating here. I think I'm going to go three, nine, three, eight, somewhere in there. It's just, it's just, it's like a, 
sour. I mean, it's it literally it is. It's just super sour. My fault. Totally. It's okay. I mean, you know. That's why we do these, right? The third, you know, my third. Is this my third go around? I, I know we can't suggest things, but if somehow like Captain and Diet made its way in there, <laughs> I would be okay with that. You know what? You find a state that that comes from. And then yeah, I don't, Jamaica. I don't. I don't know. Maybe it is. Yeah, maybe. In the Jamaican rum. But you guys don't. You haven't branched out to countries yet, have Not you? Yeah. What a good idea. T- TM trademark. Just making sure I'm saying that on air. That I suggested you go maybe outside the country. And I'm suggesting if you want rum and co- <laughs> rum and coke that you find a state. Okay. That you. So you do that research, okay. and we'll do that. State. Okay. Well. I agree because I could easily drink rum, rum and diet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm all in on that. Well, you know, again, I cannot stress this enough. Thank you for having me on with this very, very good alcoholic beverage. You're going to go wash um, your hands now. Can I just leave it here? <laughs> that way you could just, you could finish it. That's fine. Yep. Got to go wash my hand. <laughs> Syrup didn't make it in there. But thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Join all right. Us, good luck. Have fun. Thanks for uh, trying that out. Okie dokie. The smell in here is making me want some pancakes. <laughs> okay. So the true crime story I'm going to cover this week is one that I've heard told a few times. But doing the research into it, I really, I know I learned a little more. Mm-hmm. And so I hope if you have heard this story that you too walk away knowing a little more or get something out of it. Okay. I'm trying to tell it in a little different way than what I've heard. Mm -hmm. So let's dive right in. During the early to mid-1980s, on a stretch of I-70 between Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio, bodies of nine different men were found. Yep, we're just jumping right into this. (laughs) The men were all found either nude or partially nude. All had been strangled. And all had been men that were known in the gay community in surrounding areas. The killer became known as the I-70 Strangler. Like I said, the bodies were all found on this stretch of road for a few years, but then the killer just stopped, or so police thought. Oh. Fast forward to the summer of 1994. I want to introduce to you Virgil Vandegriff. Now, he is a PI, and one summer day, he receives a desperate call from a mom in utter despair over her missing son, Roger. Roger was 32 and had gone to spend the evening out with some of his friends at a local gay bar, and he never came home. Roger's partner, Rick, had done all he could at that point, calling friends, going to places he knew Roger liked to go, and had come up with no answers as to where Roger was. But Rick Rick didn't join him that night. Correct. Okay. Roger's mom and Rick went to the police to file a missing persons report after two days of kind of doing their own search. And get this, at this time, there was a 30-day waiting period before police took on missing people's cases. Not like 48 hours? Right. Like I've heard of 24 hours or 48 hours. 30? 30 days. Ouch. I'm assuming because of... His age, he was 32. Maybe they had like... Yeah, but still, even now it's 48 hours. At the time, it was 30 days. Oh, man. And so, this was early 90s. Mm-hmm. 1994. So 
they're at a total standstill in their search and they hired Virgil right away to help them. They wanted to get something looked at here. Because Roger did not have a cell phone or even a credit card to track, it's a lot of basically footwork for Virgil to do. He goes to the gay bars, he talks to all of Roger's friends and the ones that he had been out with that night. And the only tip that comes up that is useful to the case is that Roger had last been seen leaving a gay bar in a blue car with Ohio plates. Hmm. Virgil hangs out around the areas at night waiting for this blue car, but nothing. Mm -hmm. Just when he's about to give up some hope, Virgil gets another call from another family desperate to find their missing son. Virgil finds not only are both men known in the gay community in Indianapolis, but both are of the same height and the same weight. He becomes curious if the cases are linked in some way. Mm -hmm. But then he receives another call. The third call now. This is another call from a local publisher of a gay magazine in the area. He tells Virgil, listen, I know you're investigating two missing men, but let me tell you, there are more missing gay men. And this is all in Indianapolis? Yes. This was not in any other media sources. The police weren't saying anything. Virgil is now very suspicious if his cases just became those of a serial killer. At this point, the 30 days have passed and police start working with the family on Roger's case. And they do admit to the family that yes, there are other gay men from the area that have been named missing. Oh my gosh. Eight men in the last two years to be exact. Wow. And this does not include the I-70 stranglers at no, all. This it, is the, this no, is this totally is not different. connected right. at all. With no crime scenes and no connections, the police and Virgil are all at a standstill. Flyers are hung at local gay bars. Police and local authorities are keeping an eye out, but on what exactly? Yeah, they have no nothing. No. Detective Wilson was in charge of the case at this time, and she was convinced that all the missing gay men were all taken by the same person. She believed they were all connected and unfortunately all victims of foul play. She reached out to the FBI Behavioral Sciences for a profile on the suspect. Mm -hmm. They said that the killer was most likely white, mid-40s, probably bisexual, with an above-average IQ. It doesn't really narrow things down for her. She's just trying anything she can to try to figure this out. At this point, unfortunately, Detective Wilson, as well as Virgil, are in need of a survivor, basically, Someone who's taken and can tell his story. Yeah. And at the end of the summer in 1994, they finally get that from a man named Mark. Now, that's not his real name. He likes to stay anonymous. Mm -hmm. But let's just call him Mark for storytelling sake. Okay. Mark was a friend of Rogers, the man who had gone missing. Right. Mark tells police of a man that he had met at a downtown gay bar. He had seen the man before, but he didn't know him. The man was looking at a missing poster of Roger and Mark went over to chat with him. He said the man acted quite concerned when the missing men were being discussed, but it didn't quite feel genuine. Hmm. There was something about this man that piqued Mark's interest and the two continued talking. The man said his name was Brian Smart. After talking for some time, Brian asked Mark if he wanted to go back to his employer's house. Hmm. Brian was working construction on the home 
and his employer was out of town for the weekend and the home had an indoor pool and the two could take a dip and hang out. Okay. Mark obliged. In a blue car with Ohio plates, No, Brian drove Mark north of the city. Oh my gosh. So uh, I guess it wasn't released that it was a blue car with Ohio. No, if that's the only information that police have, why would they give that away? True, but still, it would have been a, a safety thing for the... Anyway, okay. It was dark, and Mark was pretty drunk. He didn't know the area at all, but knew that it took them about 30 minutes. So they're driving north out of the city, and it took them about 30 minutes to get to the house. He remembered seeing a sign leading onto a long, winding private driveway. The sign had hollow or something like that on it. Mm -hmm. He couldn't really remember. The two went to the pool house, and Mark instantly felt uncomfortable. Surrounding the pool. Now, I've watched a few documentaries and saw a few photos. Um, We'll post them on our website and our social media and stuff. But the pool is average size. I mean, it's an indoor pool. Okay. But the pool house, housing the pool, isn't really all that big. You have like a little tile path around the pool, but it's not that large. Gotcha. But surrounding the pool were all of these mannequins. So you have a teeny tiny walk space and you have mannequins. You just have mannequins surrounding this pool. They're just everywhere. They're just yes. standing there. They're all posed. And instantly Mark is freaked out. He asks Brian about the mannequins and Brian just casually answers that the owner doesn't like to feel alone. <laughs> Brian offered Mark a drink. Mark refused. Brian got a little aggravated. He left the pool area and came back all peppy and happy. Mark believes Brian possibly did a little coke or something. Mm -hmm. But he comes back and the two get into the pool. While standing in the pool, the two are chatting and Brian casually brings up erotic asphyxiation and asks if Mark had ever tried it. Not wanting to aggravate this strange, unpredictable man, Mark agrees to choke Brian with a hose. Uh Uh-huh. Brian goes unconscious, but then comes to and is totally exhilarated. He asks if Mark would reciprocate the action. Brian starts to choke Mark, and Mark realizes that he's not letting up. The hose is starting to get tighter and tighter, and Mark starts to fear for his life. He pretends to pass out, and Brian starts to ease up on the pressure. Mm -hmm. Mark had survived a serial killer, and he had no idea. Oh, my gosh. After leaving Brian Smart's employer's house, the two men stayed in touch. Brian would call Mark pretty regularly. They even chatted about the strangling event. Quote, he told me what turned him on was seeing the lips swell and the eyes bulge and the discoloration of the skin. Unquote. Mark told the P.I. Mark had told Brian that he was going to the authorities, but Brian stayed cool and calm, only responding that police wouldn't believe a gay man. Police do try to follow Mark's tips, but a large house, okay, with a pool, about 30 minutes north of the city, on a windy driveway with something maybe, maybe hollow on the sign, doesn't really narrow any place down. (laughs) I can't believe Mark is still staying in touch with this Brian dude. More time passes, and now it is the summer of 1995, and more men of the gay community of Indianapolis have been reported missing. Jeez. Then one day, while at a downtown bar, Mark is out with some friends and spots Brian Smart. He asks one of his friends to follow him when he leaves and write his plates down. Police run the plates and find that the car is registered to a Herbert 
Baumeister, a local businessman, a husband, and a father. The man and his family lived in a large million-dollar home north of Indianapolis on a winding driveway named Fox Hollow Farms. Oh, my gosh. Herb and his wife owned a few Save-A-Lot stores in the area, and police tracked him down to one of his stores to question him. Herbert, who went by Herb, denied ever being at a gay bar. Of course. Which police knew was a lie, but he claimed he was a married family man. He didn't have any time for this nonsense. So this part in the story gets a little tricky because police didn't move forward for some time. What? But it's a tricky situation. They have no proof. They have no evidence. They needed to get onto his property to check if to check it out. And see, no judge is going to to see if uh, it is the house that Mark described. But they have no real evidence that this is their guy. So what Mark said, he's been there like nothing happened. So he, of course, denied them access to his house. Yeah. But they know he's married. So do they go to her? If he's not their guy, do they just go and potentially ruin a marriage? Like, she has nothing to do with this. But this is their only lead. You know, this is their only real lead. So at the end of the day, they have to go talk to her. They, too, go and question Mrs. Julie Baumeister at one of the Save-A-Lot stores. They tell her, quote, We are investigating your husband, Herbert Baumeister, for homosexual homicide, unquote. In an interview I watched of Julie, she said, quote, I cannot begin to tell you the degree of life that left my body at that point. Oh, my gosh. I just went blank and thought, what is homosexual homicide? I can define them separately, but together. together? Right. I was so upset. I just wanted them to leave so I could cry. Unquote. She made the police leave and following weeks of utter befuddlement and total sadness, she kept denying any information to the police. She hired a lawyer, and when the police came to her on one of the many occasions that they did to ask to come see the property, mm -hmm. she told them, sure, bring a search warrant. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a guided tour. I will even serve you lunch. But police can't get a search warrant. There's no, no probable no cause. Evidence, no nothing, right. Now, let me share a little bit about Herbert Baumeister. He was born in 1947 to Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister in Indianapolis. His father was an anesthesiologist and his mom was a stay-at-home mom. He was the oldest of four children. His childhood was fairly normal. There's that normal word. <laughs> but as he grew into his teens, he started to show signs that he was a little off. He grew really fascinated with death and the fascination grew to finding dead animals. And there were even stories I read that he would bring them into school, leaving the dead animals on teachers' desks. Ew. Maybe as a present. I don't know. We had a cat like growing a cat up. Yeah, we had a cat growing up, Bilbo, who would leave dead things in my bed a few times. And I will never forget my birthday party. I think it was like my 12th birthday party. We were celebrating my half birthday. It was in the summer. And just, just imagine like, I don't know, there's probably like eight to 12-year-old girls outside. We're eating ice cream. And here comes Bilbo over the fence with... A baby rabbit mm -hmm. do you remember that mm -hmm. in his mouth but the thing is like kind of alive and so he drops screeching. it at my feet under the table and this little baby bunnies bouncing around all these girls are screaming anyway just thought i'd share that story with you guys <laughs> so this wasn't so sweet i mean bilbo was trying to be sweet herb was not trying to be sweet 
I don't know if he had such good intentions as Bilbo, but his school life wasn't the greatest in his teens. He was distracted and distracting to other students. He was failing and his parents, from what I understand, his father mostly grew concerned. At some point, he was psychiatrically evaluated. Okay. And some sources even claimed that his father had taken him secretly for the evaluation. Oh. There, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder. Wow. But here's the thing. They get this diagnosis and then they just go on their merry way. Okay. You've been labeled. So, okay, done. No treatments, no doctor's visits, nothing. Oh. So that's what makes me think it probably was a secret from his mom because what is he going to do now? Maybe she was just in complete denial. I have no idea. And also in defense of Herbert, the father, maybe because at this time when most were diagnosed with schizophrenia, the main treatment plan was electroconvulsive therapies. Mm -hmm. And this is just like his young teenage son. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. They don't really know a lot about these illnesses at the time. So what are they? I don't know. Right. Who knows what he was thinking? I can't imagine as a parent putting my child through an electroconvulsive therapy because all of a sudden he has some disorder that nobody really knows about. And hospitalized. Yeah. I'm sure they institutionalized him. But I also can't imagine as a parent getting a diagnosis and then just moving on with my life either. You know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. School was really hard for Herb. He barely graduated high school, somehow with good enough grades to attend Indiana University. Oh. He went there for a semester, dropped out. And then in 1967, his dad persuaded him to go back. But again, it's only lasted another semester. While in and out of college, he had a fairly normal social life. He was really into politics at the time and became a member of of the Young Republicans of Indiana University, which is where he met Julie. In a documentary I watched, her Baumeister Secret Life of a Serial Killer documentary, Julie kind of explained the relationship at the time. She said, you know, it was the 60s when most kids in college were all about the disco and the drugs and the drinking. Right. She and Herb enjoyed the casualties of a nice date, driving around, going to go get a Coke. And they enjoyed the idea of being entrepreneurs and owning their business one day. Like, that's just kind of what they connected on. Here's something weird. <laughs> so the two get married November 1971. And just six months after they're married, Herb's father had him committed to a mental institution. No documentary or article I read said exactly why. Why? And what's even more odd is that Julie just casually waits for two months for her new husband to get out of the insane asylum and then just goes on with their newlywed lives. No questions asked by her, no follow-up appointments. And from what I gathered from her interview, she didn't even know why he was committed. All these people should be diagnosed with something. This is just weird. I don't... I mean, they were only married how many months? Six, you said? Yeah. And then... And then he goes away for two months to an insane asylum. And then he comes out. She doesn't ask any questions. She doesn't ask why or what do we do or are you like just keep on going with our lives. She's not afraid of him, is she? No. God, so weird. So here he is back in society, not getting the proper help he needs for his diagnosis. And he has no education or anything, but his father is a doctor and really looked up to in the community. So 
He helps Herb get a job or two, but no job ever works for him. His coworkers find him moody and irritable. He had to get positive praise all the time. He was just super overbearing. Now, some jobs he worked his way up because he did have a good work ethic. He became program director at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. But even in his position, his coworkers totally avoided him. He was known to be unpredictable and just kind of an oddball. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was fired from that job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. He was fired after he was found urinating on his boss's desk. Oh, my gosh. He had a few charges against him, a hit and run, a DUI. He apparently even stole an acquaintance's car, but never served any time for any of this, of course. Herb and Julie had three children, Mary, Eric, and Emily. So when he lost his job at the BMV, now here's my question. Did Julie know why he got fired? I was going to say, what is wrong with this woman? Jeez. I mean, so he gets fired. He becomes a stay-at-home dad, and Julie goes back to teaching. Thank the good Lord above for this, but with his children, he was not the unpredictable, angry man he was at work. He was patient, and he was kind, and he really enjoyed being with his kids. Wow. Now, the dream of being their own business owners always stayed with Herb and Julie, but Herb refused to get an education. He refused any kind of trade schooling, and he gets a new job at a thrift store. And from there, he worked up and within three years, so in 1988, they borrowed like $4,000 from Herb's family and the couple opened their own Save-A-Lot thrift store. The store really took off and over time, the Baumeisters owned three Save-A-Lots and were really making some money. This is when they moved into the $1 million estate, Fox Hollow Farms, Julie's, quote, utopia. But at this point, When the case is taking place at the end of 1995, the couple was in utter distress. Their businesses were failing. They were on the brink of foreclosure on their million dollar home and their marriage. Well, that wasn't going too well either. Mm. And in 1996, Julie files for divorce. But Even though the two have a divorce set in motion, Julie is still denying any police onto her property. She is still in utter denial of everything police are telling her. Like I said, she has a lawyer and the lawyer was in communication with the local police. He was put in a really tough place because he knew something about his client that he was unable to tell Detective Wilson. He knew that his client, Julie's son, so Urban Julie's son, right, had found a skull <gasps> over a year previously on the family's property. Oh my gosh. More than that. An entire skeleton. Oh my gosh. In 1994, Herb's 13-year-old son was playing in the woods behind the family home when he discovered a human skull. He picked it up and brought it into his mother. She, of course, was freaked out and asked her son to take her to where he found the skull. Upon further inspection, she and her son discovered an entire human skeleton. That night, when Herb got home from work, Julie brought this to Herb's attention. He comforted her and told her that it was the old skeleton used by his father. Remember, he was a doctor. Right. The skeleton was originally in the family's garage, but Herb had thrown it into the woods. He promised to get rid of it. She walked out there and checked a few days later and it was all gone. And it was never spoken of again. Jeez. So Julie's lawyer is sitting on this information, Mm -hmm. but he can't share it. Mm -hmm. But then in the summer of 1996, Herb goes off his rocker. 
So the police are questioning him. They're probably following him everywhere. His businesses are all failing. His wife just filed for divorce. He randomly shuts down his stores, takes his oldest son, and heads to the lake. Obviously, his stability was of concern to Julie. And when she sees that all of their bank accounts had been cleaned out, she reaches out to her lawyer and tells him to get a hold of Detective Wilson and tell them everything. everything. Detective Wilson and the Indiana police come out to Fox Hollow Farms and discuss the situation with Julie Baumeister. They ask if she can walk them out to where her son found the skeleton and she obliges. They walk out to the location. It was the summertime, so the underbrush was very thick. But one of the police out there looks down and says, hey, I just found a bone. It was that easy. Julie's lawyer looked down. He was standing on human teeth. Oh, my god! And before you know it, you hear police left and right. Hey, get a baggie. I got something over here. Oh, I need a baggie, too. I just found another bone. He was just throwing them out there. An extensive search on the property begins. Because Fox Hollow Farms was in another jurisdiction, Detective Wilson, she went from lead on the case to just an assistant on the case. She went and got the son from her, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but she let her go. I don't get that. I, I really don't. You have your evidence now. It was out of her control at that point. Her, her responsibility was just to go get the son. But why wouldn't they have given her some to go get him i don't understand why they couldn't bring him in but they didn't so he runs on the early morning of july 4th julie's lawyer arrives at the baumeister home with the news that herb had been found dead in canada he had taken his own life there was a suicide note it mentioned the failing businesses the failing marriage but it didn't mention anything about the investigation or the men that he killed nothing the last words on the note read quote I'm going to eat a peanut butter sandwich and go to sleep, unquote. Oh, my gosh. Police have this huge puzzle to fit together. And the man, the main piece to this puzzle, the killer, the why, the how is missing. There are a lot of things in this case that infuriated me. The way the media didn't cover the cases of the missing men. Right. Unfortunately, probably because they were gay. Mm-hmm. And then... When all of these bodies are being unburied on the property, the media even downplayed it all by going as far as to say that some of the victims had previous prostitution arrests. Like, like that makes them less human. Like, so the, the media reported on it, but in that way, Julie was ruled out of knowing anything. All the dates that the men went missing the summer months of those years. So the men would always go missing in the summer months. And that was the time where Julie and the children were away at the lake house for the summer. Mm-hmm. And Herb was left behind to man the stores. Mm-hmm. This is when things would happen. But I just don't know how she wouldn't know something was up. She turned her eye to the fact that six months into their marriage, he was committed. She didn't know what for and only found out his diagnosis after the investigation. What else did she turn a blind eye to? Which led to men dying. The fact that she kept the skeleton from being found a secret for so long infuriates me. The skeleton was found in 1994. There was a whole summer after that the men were being killed. She could have saved lives. Can I can I ask something? I wonder how far out in the woods this was. Not far. So and it sounds like he wasn't even burying them very deep. So wasn't there a smell? So he was at first. 
um, and I think I actually get there, so I might repeat myself, but he hit investigators, you know, researching this. Obviously, they can't really research him, but they found multiple bodies in there. They started to get closer and closer and closer to the house. And the fact that he started burying them in shallow graves and Mm -hmm. close to like where his children play, it just shows his arrogance and it shows his, I mean, he's almost proud now of what he's doing. And it just, it's really scary because it's starting to get so close to his house. So Julie stated, quote, I know a great deal about Herb Baumeister. I know more about him than all the people on the face of this earth put together, but I know nothing about this other side. Nothing. Unquote. And that just made me feel so sorry for her. Because we really, I guess we really don't know other people, but I, I don't know. When my husband's does, committed, I would have so many questions. It like, does, and it doesn't make me feel sorry for her because she had so many red flags that she just chose to ignore. And people died because she ignored it. And that just makes me so mad. I mean, I police believe that it all started with Herb as an accident, not necessarily like he set out to kill these men, but an accident that got because he really liked that asphyxiation Mm -hmm, stuff, mm -hmm. but an accident that got him going in it all. And then he like craved the excitement. And then Mm -hmm. obviously all of this is from the investigation. They couldn't freaking interview him. So they believe he would take the bodies out into the woods and burn them. Oh, a lot of remains were found burnt. Yeah. And then he would bury them. And like I said, the fact that the body started getting left closer and closer to his house, basically like, gosh, I think it was like one of the closest was like 10 feet from the back door. Oh, my gosh. In the yard where his children play. It's like taunting. It shows his ignorant arrogance. Just so how I started this podcast was the I-70 Strangler. And Mm -hmm. those men were they stopped being found on I-70 in 1992. And that's when Herb and Julie bought Fox Hollow Farms. Oh, my gosh. So is that a coincidence or was Herb Baumeister the I-70 Strangler? They were gay men. They were all found or they had all been known in the Indianapolis gay community. Um, they were all found strangled. It fit his M.O. Totally. I believe nine bodies were found in the initial investigation and only five were identified as some of the missing men. But over the years, over 19 bodies have been recovered from the property. Oh, my gosh. So I thought maybe this would strike something because you're such a Ghost Adventures fan. But the property was on Ghost Adventures. It was a really creepy episode to watch after I did all of this research. Yeah, yeah. And because you can see the house and they show pictures of the property back then and now. And is that an old one? An old ghost adventures? I want to go back and see it. Yeah, I think it was from 2018. And the owners of the home then, I don't know if they still own it now. I think it actually was up on the market in 2019 Mm. again. But the owners of the home and Zach went there. They said that they would still go out and they could still find bone. What? Yeah. They would just go out and walk the woods and they were still finding remains and bones. Oh, that's just awful. Yeah, it's it's absolutely terrible because I'm I mean, if one of your family members went missing and fit that like was in the gay community, I guess you can only assume that he was a victim of Herb at the time. But you just don't get that full closure because nobody's you have no idea. It's so terribly sad. I hope he choked on that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And of course, Zach Bagans makes 
when he he actually which is really cool too because he interviewed virgil the pi mm-hmm. that basically solved the case right so that was really cool too because i did all this research and i was like oh yeah i think ghost adventures went there and so then i started watching it and you got to see the house you got to see the pool you got to see oh i am the ground so watching this um you got to see and then the, he goes and he interviews virgil which was so cool just because i'd done all this right research now and I guess the way they found Herb's body was very ritualistic. I guess there was like dead birds mm. and he shot himself and his arms were like out. Um, it was just, just, I don't know. I wasn't really going to say anything because I wasn't really, sh- that's the first right. time I heard about that. And of course, Zach always loves to demonize everything. Well, that's true too. But um, yeah. You yeah. know what I'm doing tomorrow, right? Yeah, I know exactly what you're doing tomorrow. <laughs> if not tonight, as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> You oh. and your muddy maple syrup cocktail over there. Yeah. Wow. Yes. I've never heard. I, I've heard of the I-70 Strangler. Uh-huh. Of course. Um, I kind of wanted to tie that in there because I really do feel like it's just too much of a coincidence. The MO just kind of fits. Yeah. And, and the time frame and ish. And he, would, he was traveling for his job at the time. Mm. Now... Julie totally denied that. She totally denied that those dates didn't match up and all this kind of stuff. But I'm sorry. I take her word with a grain of salt because I don't know. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It just it makes me so mad. Yeah. I mean, we ask. We ask that even with BTK. Like, how do their spouses not know? But and there is there's another side. They know how to turn that off and turn it on. I, I get it. But um, if my son found a skeleton in my backyard. Yeah. And my husband says it was just the one from the garage. I, I wouldn't just let it go. I think BTK was a complete different thing. I, I really do. I think he really, because he snowed a lot of people, you know. Oh, honey, I got fired today. Why? What happened? Oh, yeah. You know, I just peed on my boss's desk. Oh, okay. I'll go back to school okay. now and teach. He probably pissed you off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Moving on. So the place is pretty haunted, though. I do recommend you guys watch that Ghost Adventures. Maybe we need to do a uh, paranormal. Maybe we do. A listener sent us uh, another story from Indiana. Indiana. Mm -hmm. So maybe we're going to have to do a paranormal from this. Yeah, you probably should, Mom. Tie it together. All right, move on to paranormal. Get get this fool out of here. There's a fool right here. She's looking for her glasses and they're on top of her head. Uh, There's many people that can attest to that. All right. So I was really fortunate. I was very wise and then very fortunate. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) So for my paranormal end of Indiana, I contacted our friend Mike Palmer from Pink. Mm Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know who that pink is, it's Paranormal Investigators of Northern Kentucky. And Mike has helped us out on uh, other cases. We've uh, asked. Yeah, he was the biggest help for the Halloween episode, especially. It was his idea. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, just really like Mike a, a lot. So I thought, well, Indiana's next to Kentucky. I wonder whether they've done any investigations up there. So, of course, send him a quick message and he goes, oh, yeah. Got a perfect one for you. Oh. And he wrote the whole thing up. So. Oh, <laughs> like, wow. Must be nice not to have to really do any research, you lucky like, duck. Thanks, Mike. So the story takes place in a little town of Guilford, 
Indiana. And that's G-U-I-L-F-O-R-D. I hope I'm saying that right. Don't blink as you're passing through it. The population of the town is about 3,266. Oh. So it's pretty small. Yeah. But it does have a post office. So it is incorporated. Okay. That means something. <laughs> <laughs> so Guilford is just down the highway from Perfect North Slopes, a seasonal family destination for those who like to ski or enjoy tubing during okay, the winter. Fun. As you approach the town, you'll see a red covered bridge. As a matter of fact, it's the last one in all of Dearborn County in Indiana. It's the last bridge or the last red covered one? Covered bridge. Oh. And a local treasured landmark. I did try to, because, you know, we've done bridges and haunted bridges and, you know, I did try to find some lore associated with this bridge, but there is nothing. Oh, it's nothing. a happy bridge. It's just a pretty red covered bridge. It's a happy old bridge. So you'll take a turn towards that bridge, but actually travel over a newer bridge onto York Ridge Road. Just kind of giving you kind of a detail so you can picture where this house is. So Guilford has a small post office that you'll pass on the right very shortly as you travel York Ridge Road. And I love these directions that Mike gave me because they're the directions that I can understand perfectly. <laughs> it's not like north, south. It is or... not directions my husband would give me. <laughs> head north. Then in about three miles, you head east and west. East, west. East, west. What does that even mean? (laughs) That would confuse a lot of people, Mom. I hope Tom doesn't give those kind of directions. And then after east, west, you go north, south. So (laughs) there's like no landmarks in his directions or nothing. And I'm just like, dude. I don't know oh. where North is. I'm I have always, no I, idea. And I'm always like you too. I'm like, okay, turn right at the Chick-fil-A and then you turn left at the Aldi. <laughs> right. So I had to giggle when Mike sent these directions because it was like, okay, I can totally understand <laughs> what you're writing right Thanks, now. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> In less than a quarter of a mile, the road curves sharply to the right and begins a steep incline. After all, this is ski country in southeast Indiana. As the road steepens before any leveling off is in sight, you'll see a winding gravel driveway that crawls behind a white two-story home that has stood atop the town since 1896. Wow. As you travel the driveway, you'll see how the back of the house overlooks the entire town. Oh my gosh. The history of the home is interesting. In the early 1920s, the house doubled as a doctor's office and residence. The living room had been the waiting room and was separated from the dining room by a set of pocket doors. The bedrooms upstairs had been the patient rooms. Prior to and after that, it was a private residence. At one point, one of the owners took his horse and buggy, yes, horse and buggy, (laughs) into town. When the carriage reached the bottom of the hill, the owner was slumped over in his seat, dead. No cause of death was ever given. Oh, now, I do have to say that it is very probable that there were never any patient deaths in the house. Oh, As the doctor yeah. was there, There, no patients died in the house. Oh. So Mike's involvement with this property began in 2008 when Pink was contacted by its owner, Dennis Lathrum. Dennis was a Marine and Vietnam War vet from the west side of Cincinnati, Ohio. Tough guy. Yes. 
He purchased the house in the early 1980s. It wasn't long before he noticed all was not as it seemed. When Mike first met Dennis, this is what he told him. It was Christmas time, and Dennis thought he would decorate with a small tree. Not having a lot of money at the time, he wanted to make some good holiday memories for his daughters after moving into a new home. Dennis took a hatchet and selected a small pine tree on the property and chopped the top quarter of the tree off so that he had a perfect three-foot tree to sit atop the bureau in the dining room. Dennis and his girls lovingly decorated the small tree as it sat proudly with ornaments and tinsel. The family stepped back to admire their efforts when they heard a bristling coming from the tree. I know your mind is going to Christmas vacation. Yeah, I exactly. There's a squirrel in the tree. No, it's a lot more sinister. Slowly, they watched helplessly as invisible hands pressed and smashed down every branch before the small tree lurched to the floor. What? Over the years, as his girls grew up and moved, and Dennis had remarried, there were always small things going on in the house. You know, the drawers and cabinets and doors would be opened. Sure. Sounds like footsteps on the stairs, clanging, the knocks were often heard. Dennis was positive there were ghosts in the house. But other than the incident with the tree, they seemed to be more annoying than frightening. Hmm. That was until the Sunday that prompted him to contact so the paranormal investigators. Dennis was sitting on the couch watching football. And remember, large TV screens at the time were very blocky and bulky. Mm-hmm. And this particular large screen TV weighed over 100 pounds. Okay. Okay, big, big one. TV sat on top of a sturdy flat top entertainment center. Suddenly there was a loud slam on the back of the set, causing the TV to move forward several inches. It sounded like someone punched the back of the TV, Dennis described. Mike asked him if there was any activity going on leading up to this. Dennis thought for a moment and said he had been napping on the couch. He wasn't sure if it was a dream or if it actually happened. It was very real to him either way. He was kind of hesitant to describe it because he wasn't sure who would actually believe him. Okay, now this, quote, dream or whatever it was sounded unbelievably frightening to me personally. Dennis described it as an astral projection. He was outside of his body. He was totally aware of the house and the surroundings. And that is when the shadows came. He said there were black shadowy things that came from all directions and were descending on his sleeping body. He tried to get closer to his sleeping self, but a force was keeping him away. He was sure that these things were trying to get into his body. Now, before you go thinking this sounds pretty Hollywood, you know, uh, the and the movie Insidious. Oh, I was, I was just sitting here thinking that I was going to bring it up, but I was like, I don't even know if mom knows what Insidious is. Uh, personally, I never saw the movie, but that the movie Insidious, Insidious was still two years away. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. And that's very, very, very similar. That astro projection of, oh, my gosh, that movie is probably the scariest movie to me it was only through a blast of sheer mental force that dennis was pulled back into his body and woke up dennis was of course embarrassed as it sounded so ridiculous to him after all he was a marine he'd seen war he'd seen killing tough guy yeah so dennis and his wife dorothy have done many renovations to the house over the years they even added on a large family room with a walkout deck 
During one of the renovations, they had an electrician stop by. The electrician told them he was related to a family that had lived there at one time. One of those people was Paul Richardson. Paul, by all accounts, was not a pleasant or easy-to-get-along-with person. Uh-oh. Paul was subsequently found murdered under an overpass in Cincinnati. There are no known records of anyone who died while in the doctor's office, as I said before. Okay. So, Members of Pink became close friends with the Lathams and have investigated the home three times between 2008 and 2016. In 2011, Dennis emailed Mike about a puzzling situation. His daughter, Michelle, had bought a house five miles up the road. When Dennis and Dorothy got home in the evening after a day of shopping, there was a message on their answering machine. The message was a man, and this is what it said. Should I play that again? Oh, my God. I just had chills go all up and down my body. So that's left on the answering machine? Yeah, I'm going to turn it up. Turn it up and play it again. Oh, oh my gosh. So what does that have to do with his daughter moving five miles? So the message was what I just played for you. The caller ID indicated that the call came from his daughter Michelle's cell phone. Confused, Dennis called Michelle to see why this message was left. She told him that she had had company all day and the phone was in the kitchen charging and that she hadn't called anyone. And that is clear as day a man saying, get out. Michelle checked her call log and according to her phone, no call was ever placed to her dad's house that day. Oh my gosh, I'm covered in chicken bumps. I guess it. It's, I, I hope the listeners can hear, could hear that. Sadly, Dennis was diagnosed with cancer in mid-2018 and passed away in the home on January 3rd, 2019. On December 11th, 2020, Angie Slover, the medium on the pink team, messaged Mike. Angie told him about a dream she had involving Dennis. He had a message for Dorothy, his wife. Mm. Angie contacted Dorothy, who validated what was in the dream. And I'm going to include screenshots on our on our website. Okay. Mike sent me screenshots of Angie's message to the to Dorothy and Dorothy's response. Okay. Apparently, they were sitting in bed and talking, and then he was gone. His message. The dream. Mm-hmm, his message was basically, "I didn't mean to leave like that." Oh, gosh. There were some identifiers in the dream that made it more of a direct contact than a random instance. Okay, now this is a quote from Mike. As I typed the last sentence, my laptop abruptly shut down. No warning message, just instant black screen and a click sound. Apparently, my battery went from 81% to zero at 649 this evening. It has never done this before. Okay, mini freakout is over. I'm just glad I have autosave on my drafts. <laughs> now back to the story. <laughs> I don't know if I want you to continue the story. <laughs> like, okay, thanks, Mike. Mike said that while Lisa, and we know Lisa, she was actually the first person that I got in contact with. She's um, the one that we always talk about with staircases. Thanks, yep. Lisa. That's right. <laughs> And she was working with a, um, she was at the house working with a portal device. It's basically a spirit box radio with white noise, you know, that. Uh-huh. 
Except the thing this that puts one. Alex asleep and the thing that you freak oh God, out about. I can't about. stand it. Except this one has a static reducer. Yep. And it's amplifier with an echo chamber. Yes. So they were so working cool. at the Latham home. I want one so badly. And she heard Dennis speaking to her. Oh, wow. I guess Dennis had a very deep, baritone, distinctive voice. And she and her husband, John, had shared many evenings with them outside of the paranormal. They'd become very close friends mm -hmm. with um, Dennis and Dorothy. If Lisa said she heard Dennis, Mike said he believed her. Mm. That leaves us to the question, who was and is remaining in that house on York Ridge Road? They had several EVPs there. So I have the two clips. Mike sent me the two clips. I'm not going to play them to you now because they're very quiet, but I will post them on the website so you can listen okay, to them. Okay, great. So the team was uh, about to move the investigation upstairs, and you'll hear one of the investigators say, that chirps a lot in reference to a smoke detector with a low battery. <laughs> then a voice comes in and says, bet you won't come, as if it's daring them to go upstairs. Oh! And it is distinct. It's not as distinct as Get out. the other one, but bet you won't come, it says. In clip two, in the master bedroom, we heard a knock from somewhere in the house. I was wanting to see if it could repeat the knock, and this is from Mike. You'll hear me ask, can you make that sound again? It didn't knock back. It was the same voice as before, and it said, glad I'm dead. <gasps> they were mad. What? And you can hear it distinctly, but it's a whisper. I was glad I'm dead. They were mad. So who are these people if nobody died in the house? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I love Mike's closing in the email. He wrote, one thing is for sure. There is an entity in that house. And yeah. I think he's a bit of an asshole, <laughs> but not evil. <laughs> Lisa said, too, that... Um, in her message to me that she thought there was a little boy maybe in the in the house um, mm. where he came from. Don't know. But she, too, didn't feel like there was an evil entity in, in the house. But I don't like that. He's it's a bit an of asshole. an asshole. <laughs> but he's not evil. <laughs> oh, no. So shout out again to Pink and to Lisa and Mike. Thank you so much for helping me out with this. Awesome. I Thank wanted you. Wanted something a little different. And hey, true stories. So love it. Me too. Love it. All right. So next week, my dear. Next week, we'll be covering Georgia. Georgia. I Georgia. Have Georgia. You know, I always have to sing at one point in every episode. <laughs> I have the true crime. Yes. And I have the booze and the booze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I hope your booze was better than my booze. <laughs> my, oh. my booze was good. That booze was not good. <laughs> if you have any personal true crime or paranormal stories, send them to us for our listeners episode. Please, please, please send them. We have a good handful already. Alex is the one who reads them first, and then we read them out loud to you for the first time we have not read them before. So Exactly. I'm so excited. So we'll do that on the 7th of every month. So email us your stories. They can be short ones, long ones. You don't have to have your name. Just send them to us. Killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. 
As you can tell by the paranormal that I shared with you, these personal stories, I think, make it so much more interesting. Absolutely. Not something that we could just Google and tell you guys. It's right. There's no way I could have Googled this house. Experiences are just so much, ugh, just like get out. It's just going to, oh, it's freaking me out. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, also for the listeners episode, we will always have a patron of the month. And you might want to be the patron of the month where we drink your favorite cocktail. So become a patron. Uh, the link to that will be in the description of this episode. But if you just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash killer hangover podcast, that'll bring you to our site. We get have extra episodes on there. We just released an extra episode on the Annabelle doll That's last right. week. That's right. Patrons also get episodes released early, lots of extra little goodies on there. And we really just appreciate the little community that's growing there. That's right. $5 a month. Yes. And we're very thankful for that. Like mom said, she's going to be posting the snippets of the creepiness to our website, which is www.killerhangover.wordpress.com. You can follow us on the website so you get alerts whenever we update anything on episodes or anything like that. If you don't have a social media, that's where you can find all your pictures and everything. If you do have a social media, we are on Facebook and Instagram. All right, mom. This was another good one. Interesting. Now, don't get maple syrup on my water cup. All right, darling. (laughs) Good episode, bad drink, but... Cheers, mama. (laughs) Cheers. Love you, kid.